With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales, wherever in the world you are today. Uh, so it's April, Q1 is over. <laughs> I think, we're, I think we'll, we'll hopefully not look back and say we wish we could do that one again. Um, but it's been a really turmoil start to the year. And the biggest, the biggest you know, bump that we've had is, you know, Bitcoin, shockingly, is, is back up to about 28,000, doing very well. Uh, the rest of the market, I don't think, is as healthy. And when I say the rest of the market, I mean the traditional markets. Um, there's a lot of turmoil. We've had so many bank, you know, implosions. We've had so many regulations. You know, Gary Gensler is now, like, tweeting like crazy as if anyone cares. Um, and, and really, kind of, there's been this just direct attack on the asset class. But shockingly, it's held very strong. And we're still sitting right around that, that you know, $950 billion market cap, which is very promising. However, the, the concepts that we keep running into is, are these regulated assets? Um, should they be regulated assets? And really, you know, what is cryptocurrencies and, and how should consumers you know, gain adoption to those? Um, there's a lot of people that have very different feelings on the technology is enough to regulate them. Um, and, but then there's others that, that believe that going beyond just the magic you know, blockchain pixie dust side of things is that real world assets can live on chain. Um, I'm one of these believers in that. And that real world assets are actually the cryptocurrencies of the future. Um, because you're actually trading objects or, or, or cryptocurrencies or tokens that have linked to real-world value, um, thereby, thereby establishing base level um, and really getting rid of a lot of the volatility. That being said, I'm very lucky to have an expert with me today, Carlos from Securitize, and you've been doing this for a while, correct? Yeah, so, well, thanks, Jay, for the invite to, to the podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. We started very early with this whole idea about, you know, bringing real world assets on chain uh, back in 2017. At that time, it was not called real world assets. I think the crypto people have a, an ability to, you know, retag things in a different way. But the, the whole uh, concept was the same, right? Like, you know, I still believe that the, the main use case for blockchain is a, as kind of like new rails for, you know, financial services and, and capital markets. And what capital markets do, they, they basically, you know, give access and trade and, and, and you know, securitize, if you want, uh, real world assets to be able to, to trade them and allow people to invest, uh, etc. So that was the original concept, and I still believe so. Obviously, the industry has gone in a completely different direction for a long time, but I'm, I'm pretty happy that even though with a different name, that this team is coming back because that I really believe that's the, the, the productive uh, use case for, for blockchain uh, and not you know, trading with uh, imaginary internet money. So. Ma magic meme coins. Um, but real quick, you know, Carlos, let's, go, let's take a second and, and understand kind of where you came from because I think it's really important to, to understand, you know, the history you have, um, you know, and, and, and what got you here today. Well, I don't have a, a background in financial services or regulation, even though that's what I do 90% of my time now. My background is in technology. I have a PhD in computer science and I've always been working in you know, companies building products and, and trying to produce innovation to solve uh, problems, right? So I started early on in my career um, at a startup. I was at the time uh, in Japan, I, I studied the talking stuff technology and that was when the dot-com was uh, kind of like uh, 
booming and, and the, the problem we were trying to solve back then was actually how to bring images to the internet, like high quality, high resolution images, which now obviously is not a problem because bandwidth is very big, but back then was a big problem. So, so we did that for different types of facets, you know, whether there was art, like fine art and digitize it and put it on chain uh, in a secure way, or was, you know, satellite imagery, which today is very widely accessible things like Google Maps, but back then was not like that, yep. uh, et cetera, and, and how to manage them efficiently, right? So, so what was with this, what, that was called digital assets back then, and now the term means something different, but it was like about, you know, bringing those digital assets that were imagery uh, online and allow people to basically consume them, right? That's how I started with my career. I did that for a few years. Went through the ups and downs of the dot-com period, uh, which was an interesting thing. Um, so I learned a lot. It was my, my first position as a CEO. We did acquisitions and, you know, buy companies. Then they had to downsize when things were not working well. So it's not my first winter <laughs> in, uh, in an industry. Um, and then I kind of uh, switched completely industries. I was recruited by a telecommunications company in Spain called, uh, called Telefonica, which is one of the largest ones. They have properties uh, across Europe and uh, Latin America. And, um, and the theme at the time was uh, the same thing, like how do you bring services beyond connectivity, right? Telcos, for the most part, what they were providing was, you know, bandwidth and connectivity, whether fixed or mobile or uh, voice services and messaging. And then that's when kind of like the, the new, you know, 3G and things like that was started to take off. And right after I joined uh, this company, the iPhone launched. And I think that was a, you know, if you look at the different revolutions we had in, in the different of, uh, in the history of tech, mobile was one of the big ones, right? Because suddenly you had a mini computer in your in your hand where you could actually do a lot of stuff that you could not do it, and it also exactly. But you know, it actually gave a computer to people that didn't use a computer, yeah. which is one of the, the interesting things, right? So so it really expanded the the consumption of uh, online services in, in a dramatic way and the fact that you could also have things like a camera and a GPS and stuff like that completely disrupted uh, many industries. I, I do remember when I was at, when I lived in Asia at the beginning, I used to travel a lot and I used to carry my book guides and maps and stuff like that. But those things completely disappear, right? So it was very you revolutionary. Had to, you, had to, you had to print your map quest before you went on the drive because there's no <laughs> way to do it when you're on the road. Correct, exactly. There was no way to access those things on, online. Uh, by the way, I did work uh, at that company that, that I mentioned at the beginning in, in, a map, in the MapQuest project about bringing those images online, which is uh, the, the predecessor of Google Maps. It was not, not very efficient at that time because of connectivity, but um, I was pretty fond of, the, of that service. And as you said, you couldn't actually carry it with you, right? So um, I think that it changed so many industries uh, in, in many different ways, but the telecommunications industry, which is what I was uh, working for, never managed to basically capture any value from that beyond that they obviously increase uh, the, their core services, right? So so after a few years doing that, um, I was kind of bored of telecommunications industry. I went through a couple of different telcos and just thought that nothing exciting was happening there. And, um, and I kind of stumbled upon blockchain. Um, and the, 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 how I discovered blockchain was through the ICO boom when it started in, in 2016. And... Um, and you know, I was kind of fascinated as somebody that has been in tech for many years and I actually had done a lot of, you know, early stage investments as an angel investor, invested in some funds, etc. Um, I was fascinated by the fact that, you know, people can just issue a token that you could purchase it. It gives you some sort of, you know, upside or participation in the underlying project, which was the main reason why people invested, realistically speaking. Um, but at the same time, then you had liquidity, right? Because those tokens got listed afterwards, so you could just trade them, uh, etc. So if you think about 
venture investment is actually the opposite, right? First, it's very difficult to invest. It's not something that you can just go and do and, and throw a thousand dollars at it. Uh, and second, those venture investments are very liquid, right? Which makes it also not very convenient for most people because, you know, individual investors have different liquidity needs than institutionals, right? So, like, you don't know what's going to happen. One day you, you change job and you have to go to a new uh, city or, or you have kids and then you have more cost or you get divorced and you lose 50 percent of your things. And, you know, at that point in time, if you only have illiquid assets, it's problematic, right? Yep. So, so I was fascinated about that. And um, at that time, there were people talking about how this could be an advantage to be able to, to deal with, you know, illiquid uh, assets like, let's say, venture capital, right? So together with a friend, we had this idea, why don't we do a VC, an, an ICO for a VC? Uh, because it makes all the sense in the world, right? You give access to people to an, uh, an asset class that, you know, has very good returns, but it's very inaccessible. And the asset class is very liquid, so you could potentially trade this. So um, now the minor detail that we didn't know at that time is that these things are securities. <laughs> so um, we talked to, um, you know, different lawyers. And of course, that was 2016. So people were still trying to figure things out uh, in the crypto industry. And some people had the view, well, if you can make your token a utility token, then, you know, you don't need to uh, follow any regulations because it's not a uh, regulated asset. Some others told us, you guys are crazy. If this is a pooling money to invest somewhere else and you return money at some time and there's an economic interest in the underlying asset through the token, that's a security. And, uh, and you know, even though that was not my expertise, by looking at both camps, I kind of got to the conclusion this is, these are securities. And, and so, yeah. be, like, from my naive view back then, you know, people trade securities all the time. You could go to Robinhood and buy Apple shares. You can, you know, invest in a VC fund. All those things happen, right? So there's regulations. People just follow them and, and nothing happens. So we conducted one of the first, was called back then a regulated ICO, which was an ICO that, you know, the token actually was a security and represented a real world asset. In this case, was a, a venture capital firm. So we did it. It was successful for, you know, for the time when it was done. Uh, it kind of got a little bit of uh, traction and in the industry. And then in July 2017, the SEC issued the first report about ICOs. It was called the DAO report. Uh, the DAO was like kind of the precursor of the ICOs, if you want. And it said very clearly, this is unregistered sales of securities. So you're selling securities, you're not registering them, you don't follow exemptions for registration, so, so these things are illegal. And then someone said, well, we're not going to prosecute anybody, you know, uh, backwards. You know, you've done what you've done. There was no guidance, fair enough. But moving forward, you guys, please follow the rules, right? And then you'll think that people will follow the rules. <laughs> that actually didn't happen. Um, but we believe people were going to follow the rules. And in, in fact, few people did follow the rules and approach us and say, like, how do you guys have done this regulated ICO? That's when the term security token mm -hmm. came into, into market as opposed to utility tokens. And, uh, and it felt like that's a big asset class that is potentially much productive and much bigger than utility tokens because, you know, securities... Yeah. It's a, it's a huge, you know, multi-trillion uh, or dozens of trillions of, of dollars in size, right? So if you can actually make them more efficient, put them on the blockchain, you know, democratize access, trade them, etc., that's a huge opportunity, right? So we started the company with that premise. That blockchain was basically, you know, more efficient rails for dealing with securities than what traditional capital markets have. So um, two things happens. So first, crypto people continue playing regulatory arbitrage, continue doing ICOs, and when they exhausted the ICO path, then they come up with a governance token as another way to bypass uh, securities regulations and then NFTs and you name it, right? 
And I unfortunately think that will continue happening. Crypto people have a, a very creative and coming up with <laughs> things to bypass regulations. So, but you know, we took the path of not these are regulated assets. So we yeah. let's figure out how we manage them on chain, right? Because this I still think that there's a, a lot of inefficiencies if you look at how capital markets function today. So they're poorly digitized, etc. So the, what we didn't know was there's going to be this very long you know, regulatory journey in terms of ourselves getting the licenses and also kind of stumbling upon the issue that, you know, blockchain does actually do things differently, right? Like, you know, is a, is a distributed ledger, is that like a legal ledger where you can actually represent securities when you trade on chain, how do you settle them? You know, how do you provide dividends? Can you use stable coins or not? Like there was all sort of, uh, can you can you custody those securities? There's a lot of, um, you know, issues that have come up over the years. And we basically started getting our licenses to be able to operate. So in June 2019, we were registered as a transfer agent with the SEC. Mm -hmm. uh, transfer agent is the regulated entity that precisely manages securities. Uh, so with the idea of doing it uh, on chain. And then subsequently in 2021, we got a, a broker dealer and an ATS. So a broker dealer allows us to sell these tokens that represent securities and an ATS is an alternative trading system. It's basically the license that allows you to trade them on secondary market. So you can create an order book, very similar to how you will trade public securities. And, that, and that's US based. That's a US, yeah, it's all under the SEC. So we went also the, the hardest path, if you want, from a, <laughs> a jurisdiction perspective. <laughs> but look, at the end of the day, if you figure out the US, we, can, we talk more about what people are doing with real assets these days. I see a lot of projects that they block the US because they don't want to do the hard work of like figuring out how to do it here. But you know, the US is the is the largest financial market, right? So if if this industry just you know only works outside in Switzerland or in Malta or in Gibraltar, it's never gonna be a, yeah. a big industry. I still believe that. So anyway, we took that path. Uh, it's been a long journey, but uh, well, here we are. So there you go. No, and, and I really I always love starting with with about you know you because to me, you know, you were there for the birth of Web One. And you've seen the, the the kind of the evolution of you know where Web two you know the mobile internet the ability to kind of you know write you know more fru more fluently up there, um, but a lot of those early Web one you know kind of lessons are now being you know reiterated on on Web three, which are very different than Web two. So I always say Web three is kind of like the rebirth of everything because we kind of have to start over and go. We kind of missed a. a key section of this, which is actual ownership, the ability to actually have, you know, this ledger that's on there and, and it's desperately needed for a true online experience because otherwise you're just, it, it goes into a black hole and, and we've seen what this happens. You're not, we haven't fixed to date any of the banking issues, issues um, with any, any amount of blockchain technology. And so I really do agree with something you said, which is that the, the blockchain DGENs, which I, which I know and love, um, they always try to, to fix regulation problems through technology and the and the challenge is um you you can only have so many loopholes when when you're talking about a regulated asset uh class that that is being governed by people that are trying to protect clients and consumers interests and to be perfectly clear um you know the the raw web three you know do whatever you want is not a safe place to trade, um, I, whether you're on a centralized exchange or decentralized exchange, it's a very you know kind of volatile and dangerous asset class. Um, that being said, you know when we start talking about security tokens, we start talking about digitized assets, real world assets. I'm, I'm sure you thought in 2017 this is right around the corner, like we're you know going to yeah. any day it's going to hit. And yeah, here we are. 
around the corner. <laughs> yeah, here, here we are six years later. We still don't have a name for what this is. That's how early, you know, it, we truly are. But, you know, the, the question I have for you before we kind of jump into exactly what Securitize does is, you know, what, what are some of the, the hurdles that you guys have had to overcome to, to help connect regulation with the technology um, to, to really bring it into the fact where you can even have intelligent conversations with regulators? So look, the, the, when we started talking to regulators in 2019 and today, I would say that the situation is, is, is fairly different. Um, at least today, you, you do get more uh, knowledgeable people that have thought about the problems, except not necessarily all of them, but, you know, a lot of people both, uh, you know, we've talked to recently with some some staff, some uh, congressmen that are working in regulation and uh, people at FINRA, the SEC, there's a lot of people that are pretty uh, knowledgeable. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that there's a still a bit of a confusion of what they see now refers to crypto securities, which they are basically saying XRP is a security versus an, a, a security, a, something that has been issued uh, with the intent of being a security, which is managed completely different uh, on chain. Yep. Uh, I think that's a, a sticking point. And then there's still also a lot of uh, issues with the, with the tech itself, right? Like, is it really decentralized? Uh, is it, uh, you know, can, can you, if you have a fork or if you have a 51% attack, what happens with your ledger? Because fundamentally, one, one of the things I think is that I'm not in the camp of that uh, blockchain is good for censorship resistance and, you know, destroy the government and all that stuff. Uh, I, I think that fundamentally, as you said, a blockchain solves the problem of being able to track ownership in a reliable way, right? And mm-hmm. if you think about it, that doesn't really exist anywhere. Like if you, you know, if I own, uh, uh, I don't know, shares of Apple, believe it or not, it's not, I don't have a simple way to prove that I actually own shares of Apple. There's not a ledger that I can, you know, prove people here are my shares and this is what I own. So, because they are not there, they are the broker dealer and the broker dealer doesn't really own them. They're at the DCC and blah, blah, blah. And for private markets, it's even worse, right? Like sometimes it's just paper-based and people have signed subscription agreement, the, the ledgers that they use are things like Carta, which is, is unreliable because it's, it's people, humans have input the data and anybody can change it. And, you know, you may, you might have got divorced and suddenly you don't own 50% of the shares, but that didn't get recorded anywhere. And because they, the person that got the 50% of the shares doesn't have to actually carry those shares with them, like, let's say, in the form of a token, for instance, then, you know, there is a lot of uh, inconsistencies there. So at the fundamental level, I think that blockchain solves this problem of mm-hmm having this public cryptographically secure distributed ledger that you know, you can rely to know who owns what, right? And yep. as simple as that it is, that's actually a, a big thing. And then on top of that, you can represent on the same ledger things that represent securities with things that don't represent securities, like let's say a stable coin, which is you know a digital dollar, right? Mm-hmm. That solves the other problem, which is when you trade in capital markets, the ledger that tracks the securities movements versus the ledger that tracks the cash are disjointed. They're not in the same ledger, right? So this is why things don't settle immediately. And this is why certain things are complicated to do because you, you need to make sure that if I sell you $10 of securities, you get the securities, I get my $10, right? Yeah. And this on-chain is a very simple thing. It's an atomic swap between two tokens. One represents, you know, let's say $10 through whatever USDC and the other one represents $10 of, of a share that somebody like us has issued on behalf of an issuer, right? Yeah. So, so it solves fundamental uh, problems that, you know, could completely revolutionize how people, uh, you know, represent ownership and, and hold securities and trade them. Yeah. So, so let's just dive right in. Cause I, again, this, I 
fully believe in in the way you guys manage. Um, I've, I've loved Securitize. I've watched what you guys have done. I, I have not traded on the platform, but I kind of watch uh, and, and really watch you guys' <laughs> social media because I, 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 am, I am a technologist, but I'm also like a regulatory compliance nerd. And I look and go, there's, there doesn't need to be one or the other. Um, both of these, these, these two are needed for us to hit the true market caps that we want. $3 trillion, that's nothing. That's like, congratulations. Yeah. We've proved a concept that we can actually hold value there. But, but the entire thing is built on a house of cards. And that's not what you know, we want for the next, ver- you know, next version of the true global economic model. Um, now, that being said, the, the uh, quick number that I like to say is there's $9 trillion a day in, in trades that, that occur around the world. So, so $9 trillion moves every single day in the wow. most inefficient and clunky ways possible. So that being said, go ahead and describe um, you know, really what Securitize does and, and kind of where you guys are at in the market today. So in capital markets, let's, let's start breaking them into different parts. One is public markets, which is mm-hmm. this $9 trillion a day that they, they trade. And those are, they have their own set of inefficiencies, but they have a very, you know, if you want, uh, inefficient but robust infrastructure that has been created to make people mm-hmm. trade, right? And there's so many things I could think of that you could improve there. But for the most part, it works, right? You can open a Robinhood account and go and buy Apple shares and, you know, within a second you have them on your account. They're not really there, but it looks like you bought them. And, you know, and so, uh, you know, they, when they pay a dividend, you don't get it immediately. It takes you like a few weeks, but fine, you get it. And so I think that um, that public markets and public markets are regulated in a, in a different way than private markets. So mm-hmm. the, the infrastructure is there uh, for a reason. So, which I think it would be very complicated to displace. Now, private markets, which are huge as well, and actually they've been performing better than public markets and and growing faster uh, in terms of new amount of capital um, being raised in private markets in the last, if you want, 10 years or so. They're also like multi-trillion dollars. They suffer of different problems, right? They they, they suffer from the basic lack of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, nothing is digitized there. Everything is paper-based or or at most, you know, simple centralized databases or or Excel in some cases. they are very inaccessible, they are extremely liquid, it's difficult to borrow against them, uh, etc. So we early on decided to focus on that part of the market because we felt that it's easier to, to tackle a problem when you don't have to displace existing infrastructure because, you know, displacing infrastructure is a complicated problem, especially when, when you're, as you said, that infrastructure trades $9 trillion, right? So it's not like yeah. you're not displacing something small. <laughs> so, But private markets don't have infrastructure, and I think that's the great thing, right? Like we could start from scratch and, and envision how private markets will be digitized on-chain and how you bring all these assets, uh, you know, whether it's private equity, VC, credit, real estate, uh, et cetera, on-chain to make them more accessible and make them more liquid and eventually borrow against those asset classes that are difficult to borrow against for the same thing because you can't prove the provenance of the collateral and who owns what and how do you move it, et cetera. So. Yeah, and, and, and give us a couple examples of, of private markets. So sometimes referred to as dark pools, correct? So these are, you know, they can be traded. They can be traded amongst small groups and, or, or some very large groups. But these these aren't traded on the traditional stock market, even though they are regulated securities, correct? I mean, all securities are regulated. Uh, oh, it's true. I, I'm sorry. So, <laughs> there, some of them have to be registered. Some of them are exempt from registration. So right. people tend to think that they, the ones that you don't have to register are not regulated. They're still regulated. Uh, but when I refer to private markets, I don't refer to like, you know, dark pools for trading. Those dark pools, uh, for the most part, they, they still trade public securities. Let's say Apple shares and stuff like that. Whatever I'm referring to, to private assets, right? So 
you know, venture capital uh, is a private asset. Uh, you know, it's not registered, it's not publicly traded anywhere. Uh, private equity, which is a huge asset class, uh, is there as well. Uh, credit, so which is now becoming very popular in the crypto space because credit is, uh, if you want in some instances, it's less regulated than securities, um, you know, real estate, uh, etc. So that, those are the kind of like, also people refer them to as alternative assets. Uh, which is something that has been growing tremendously the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. <coughs> and all institutional investors, they do have an allocation into private markets and alternative assets because they know it's a good asset class that performs well and helps you diversify when there's volatility in public markets, having private assets, etc. But if you think about individual investors, most of the people have never invested on a VC or have never invested on a private equity firm, have never invested in a credit fund, etc. Again, because on one hand, they are very inaccessible. And, and they're not because they're not digitized, not suitable to like a, a broad uh, uh, adoption, and they don't provide like good fractional ownership of it. And the second is because they are illiquid, and the illiquidity obviously create a problem as we discussed with individual investors. So we focus on on basically how we bring those assets on chain. The, the first thing we do is we have a, a, a tokenization platform that allows you to issue a token that represents. Uh, a security which is backed by that private asset. The, when you talk about real world assets. I don't know if people realize that you're not bringing like a building on chain, right? That the concept doesn't exist, and I don't know if it's feasible because of how building registration works. What you do is you basically securitize the building and issue a token that represents an underlying economic interest on a fraction of the building, right? And this that's the it's a traditional securitization process that finance has, you know, used for for decades, and that's actually what we want to securitize, right? Because we believe that that's the the right way to bring real-world assets on-chain. So the first thing we do is this. We tokenize the asset. We have a license to issue those securities as a transfer agent. We'll do investor warning management, uh, all the you know legal stuff that is required to issue the, the, the asset, uh, register the wallets, issue the tokens in a, in a compliant way, controlling how the token moves around. Like These are securities, right? So if I sell you one security, maybe you cannot sell it right away. Or if you sell it, you can't sell it to somebody in North Korea because it's not allowed to hold the US security. So those are the other things that are different than you know cryptocurrencies or, uh, they're, or they're permissioned they're not permissionless we have, they are, they are, once they are on chain they are permissionless if you want because they can move by themselves okay. but there's a set of rules that controls how they move which are implemented through smart contracts okay. uh, so it's a slightly so, different it's a bit of a hybrid model if you want but I, I believe also that the, the pure permissionless DeFi stuff will never work for real assets because you will break all sorts of rules right so that's one thing. And then the other thing is we have a portal uh, as a broker. And we've been providing this service to companies more than, you know, 250 over the years. And that's been our bread and butter uh, so far. And then more recently, we launched a broker dealer where you can actually purchase some of those securities directly from us. Uh, we've obviously been much more careful what we place there in terms of the securities. Um, and then we also have a venue where you can actually trade them in secondary market once they've been issued. So... And, That's and, kind and, of like the end of the of this. Yeah, and, and and I love that. There's there's so many concepts. And again, we for people that are listening that really want to understand exactly what Carlos is saying, you know, when you put a building online, it's not, you know, here's the title of it. Everyone go figure it out. This isn't, you know, the, the, you know, there's not a DAO that's doing this. These are companies that, that have fiduciary responsibilities to own, run and manage that, that building for most parts. They're selling some equity and shares in there into a way that you can, you can invest in something that's physical, has, has known returns. Most of the commercial buildings, they're going to tell you what their cap rates are and uh, yeah. what they're, you know, give you an idea what the rent 
liberals are. That's a great thing. You know, I, I love commercial, uh, you know, real estate investing, except I hate the fact that there's no liquidity. That when I want to get rid of a building, I and I've got a couple of buildings right now, either I got to sell the whole thing or, or you know, I'm just stuck with it. And it takes months and months and months to, to move these things. So the idea of me taking 20, 30% of the equity of this and putting it on chain through someone like Securitize, it's very attractive um, investment for, for not just for me, but for, for others that, that say, hey, I do want to get in on this. And keep in mind, people might not have money to buy the entire building, right? So they yeah. just want to buy a fraction of the building because they still want to participate on the upside of owning a, a, a building, right? And the other good thing of fractionalization is that if you want to sell your building and your building is worth $10 million, you need to find somebody that first has $10 million <laughs> and second wants that particular building, right? And agrees on the price. Well, if you break this $10 million in 10 million, let's say, tokens, every one of them representing $1 of economic interest in the underlying asset, uh, then it's easier to find people that want to buy $1 or $10 or $1,000 and, and, and build out the the, the fractional ownership uh, rather than have to find one person that wants to buy the whole thing. Right? And that democratizes access to the asset class, uh, which is you know the intent of what we're doing. So. And, and and the thing and again they still can be traded so you can you know you can say hey I, I bought in and the the there was you know eighty percent vacancy in this building and now there's less than twenty percent vacancy and I'm going to go ahead and sell now um, somebody else would would like to, to go ahead and get the dividends or the returns or however they're going to manage it on chain and I think that that's always one of the most interesting things about you know digitizing securities um, is is that. You, you can actually have, so let's just say you want to raise a billion dollars to to build a building or to build a company or, or whatever the case is. That's that's a much more valid business model than I'm going to, you know, we're going to put a billion dollars collectively into a meme coin and it's going to go up because things go up. Um, and so it's an entirely different way to look at cryptocurrencies once you understand that this exists. I, I agree. And, and I also think that a lot of this tech that has been, developed in the last uh, few years for, for the non-regulated assets or, or maybe regulated assets that we're treating as non-regulated. <laughs> I think this is still useful, right? So uh, I'll just give you one particular example on, on something I like of DeFi. So um, DeFi has like two things, right? Automated market making uh, and then, um, you know, borrowing and lending, right? So borrowing and lending is actually a good use case for, <coughs> for real-world assets, right? <clears throat> because sometimes, you know, if you... If you buy an asset and somebody wants to lend you against it, you need to prove that you own the asset, right? Mm -hmm. And that you still own it, that it's not encumbered by anything, that you haven't sold it, that you haven't got divorced and don't own 50% of it, that you haven't actually borrowed against it with somebody else, etc. And that thing that is very well solved, let's say, for houses and mortgages, because there's a whole system set up to do that, it just doesn't work for other asset classes, right? Like if you go and buy, you know, a, a, a private equity fund from, you know, one of the warehouses, let's say Morgan Stanley, and you go to JP Morgan and tell them, oh, I want to borrow against this. First thing is going to tell you, how do I actually know you own the asset and you purchase it and things like that. So they, they, going back to the what we were discussing about why blockchain is useful is because they, there is a, a irrevocable proof of ownership on the asset. And as far as you have it there, it's on your wallet, it's on chain, and it hasn't moved means, you know, you haven't lended, you haven't sold it, and it's still yours, right? So the, the basic premise of, you know, tell me what you own so I can verify it and, and lend you against it is very simple to do. And then the second thing is, okay, now I, you know, I lend you 30% loan to value against this asset. How do I make sure you don't get rid of the asset somewhere <laughs> because it's the collateral, right? So again, 
moving into a smart contract, control it from there, uh, etc., is, is a very elegant way of solving this. And then the third thing is, well, this loan fails to repay. Uh, how do I seize the asset, right? Like I need to take the collateral, it's on mine now because you didn't pay me the loan, so, and then I have to liquidate it, right? So again, the, the smart contracts and tokens solve this problem very elegantly. So this is an example of things that could be very productive for real-world assets, but that today largely they are applied to all sort of, uh, you know, unregulated things that, as you mentioned, might be meme coins or, you know, FTT tokens or whatever people come up with, so. We don't talk about those FTT tokens anymore. <laughs> um, so, so one of the things I, I want to point out is, you know, right on your website, you know, you guys uh, have, you know, your your primary and your secondary markets, so people can choose, you know, where do they want to trade? Do they want to, you know, be on the primary or secondary? And and two, you have, you know, great investments. You know, like KKR is is on here, Hamilton Lane. You know, these these are are well known names and brands. That you know, could you call KKR? Of course you can. Hamilton Lane will be thrilled to take your call. But a lot of that's not the where society is going, and that's kind of not where um, you know the, the world is trending. And it's also much more complicated because either any one of those, they're going to want to sell you a much larger package than you most likely want. Um, you know, even if you are an accredited investor, you know, you you want to be able to have choices and jump in and out. And the fact that you can have you know KKR and Hamilton Lane, you know, right here on your homepage that people can bounce in and out of. Um, that's a dynamic difference and dynamic shift from from the traditional broker model, which is I call my dude and I got to talk to my dude, and if I'm done with with my dude, I got to end that relationship and go somewhere else. Um, this is this is entirely putting everything on chain. It's a much more frictionless system. So I entirely believe in in the concept of blockchain. Um, it's just it's a struggle to 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 get the adoption and to get the education. I mean, the, the adoption, I believe, will come. It's just a matter of time. And I think the fact that, you know, the, the, the other side of crypto is, is getting regulated uh, will push people towards regulated assets. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I think that, as you mentioned, you said, well, you can call KKR or Hamilton and they will take your phone call. I'm not sure about that. Like, I don't, I wouldn't know where to call KKR, right? And KKR themselves, they will probably don't deal with an individual investor that wants to invest $20,000 in their funds, right? That's that's the, the right. minimum investment, actually, we have for both KKR and Hamilton Lane. It's very low. So it's supposed to be very accessible, right? Uh, KKR can handle tickets of that size. They don't have a simple way to onboard an investor, KKR or Hamilton Lane or any other one. For that matter, they don't have a simple way to, you know, issue the securities uh, in an efficient way, manage them, provide eventual liquidity, etc. So I think that that's where this technology comes into play um, as a way to basically take those, you know, really good assets and bring them to to people in a very simple and an automated way and digital way. So, yeah, I, I love that. So, when you guys are, are looking for to onboard, you know, whether they're funds, whether they're assets, or or everything else, what what's kind of the the bread and butter, the the main you know uh, criteria that that you want? Um, you know, at this time, again, we're still in that early phase. We haven't hit global adoption yet, uh, clearly. But you know what? What's the best you know asset class you you think to be tokenized right now? So as I mentioned, we have two business, right? The B two B business, where you know we act as a as a tokenization platform, as a manager of those securities on chain mm-hmm. through smart contracts and etc. So that's a, the, the transaction business. 
from from that that business we basically work with anybody that is legit right so we don't care it's a service and you know the more the merrier the, that drives revenue etc now when we put it in our broker dealer as you said you come at securitize.io right so it's our brand people are buying from us even though it's like a kicker fund but it comes from us and, and and then there we're trying to for the time being be very careful in how we build that business by trying to put very few assets very high quality things that we think are from reputable brands that people will want to access that today are not accessible, etc. So, so that's kind of like the the theme, and and we've been trying to do it very carefully. I think, as I mentioned, alternative assets are, are a very interesting asset class that fits that description. So, we have now two private equity funds. We're gonna soon put a, up there a credit fund, um, which credit these days is a very popular thing because you try to beat. Uh, you know, interest rates. Um, so we're looking, the other one we're going to do soon is uh, secondaries for private equity, which is as people that purchase in the middle of the cycle. So they avoided the J curve that uh, private equity fund has. Um, and then we're looking also at some real estate projects, etc. So within the realm of real estate, uh, of alternative assets, sorry, I think those are the categories that we're trying to put there. But as I mentioned, we're trying to you go slowly, work with these large tier one asset managers that have a brand name that people will trust that the asset is a, is a quality one because it's also a new asset class that most people don't necessarily understand, right? So it's, it's very hard to judge, you know, which one is a good private equity fund or another one. But if someone tells you, well, KKR is the manager, then you probably are going to trust that their performance is going to be, you know, more consistent than, than somebody you've never heard of. So. Yeah, and, and that's you know kind of the other side of this is right now if you want to do research on fund to fund to fund to fund, um, it's a lot of work. Um, you're you're going to wait for a trade, you know, some sort of trade, uh, you know, trade metric or trade magazine to be able to put out some some things. Versus if all of this is trading on chain and you can see distributions, you can see liquidity, you can see growth and volume. Um, it, that that's very transparent. That's very easy for people to make a choice and for the good managers, the good fund managers to rise to the top, um, which I think is good for, for consumer adoption um, and protection. And, and for the ones that, that quite simply are full of hot air and, and aren't producing, you know, that, that consumers have the ability to retract and, and uh, take, their, take their money elsewhere to people that are, are being respectful of, of their time and money. I have my own view about, you know, individual investors doing research. Look, nobody reads, for instance, when you invest on Tesla shares or on Apple shares on Robinhood, nobody reads their their filings, right? No. So people just think, oh, well, Apple is a company, I believe long-term will be more valuable than it is today, uh, etc. And if you look at crypto, it's even worse, right? Because there's nothing actually to research because those companies are kind of like zero transparent in terms of what they do with the money or mm-hmm. what is that they're bringing. So it's just all based on, on, on you know, perception and, and not facts. And I think FTX is a good example of that, that a company that people bought the FTT token because the perception was FTX is a good company. It turned out to be a complete fraud. And then those tokens went down to zero or, or Terra Luna before, same thing. There was no reason why those assets will be worth anything except perception that they should be worth something. Yep. Um, so I think that that the private markets is the same thing. Like I don't expect that people are going to do due diligence on the private equity KKR fund. All the disclosures, of course, are there because these are legal sales of securities. You have to discuss all those things. But I think people are going to kind of like look at the high-level information that we provide in terms of like what's the historical performance, which obviously does not necessarily reflect future one, but, you know, it's always there. You know, who is the ad manager? What's the, what do they invest? Is In the case of private uh, KKR is healthcare, which is obviously a very interesting, potentially growing uh 
you know, industry uh, because of, you know, the, the need for digitization, adoption of new technologies, etc. I think that, that should probably be enough for you to, to allocate a part of your portfolio into that asset class to get exposure to it. The same way that you allocate something to, you know, public stocks and, or crypto or some other asset classes, right? I think that um, the portfolio construction that I, we mentioned, that what large institutional investors do, it doesn't trickle down to individual investors because of the lack of accessibility, right? So I always tell people, like, look, if you want to invest like the best, then you should have some of these assets on your portfolio because that's what the pros do, right? <laughs> And, and and those are going to outperform, you know. Well, not every day, but I mean, over the, over the long term, you know, a lot of the meme coins and a lot of the the, the, the silly JPEGs um, that people have thrown, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, of hours, millions of dollars into, just based on FOMO. Um, and there's listen. I, I mean, look at yesterday. Yesterday, Elon Musk put the Dogecoin logo in uh, in Twitter and it went down like thirty percent for no reason. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, there, there's there's no chaos or rhyme or reason to this. Carlos, one of the most amazing things about this is just the concept of, you know, eliminating these, these old paper and, and Excel and just th these horrible metrics of, of, of bookkeeping um, that, that are so outdated compared to the, the, the new technology. And again, I'm not talking about, you know, Bitcoin. I'm not talking about Ethereum. I'm talking about the idea of, of the decentralized ledger and the immutability uh, of blockchain, which has been proven to, to really showcase that it, it can't be broken. Um, humans do their own thing. And that's, an, that's a whole different story that we can't, we can't fix today. But the idea of what you're trying to do of saying, I just want to do the same thing, but in a better system, how, how do you educate and, and on, onboard um, you know, with that? This is a, a very important point because, you know, if you look at where regulators are now, they're kind of, if you look at a couple of recent things from the SEC, they seem to indicate that they don't think public blockchain is, is useful for anything. And I think it's because of this confusion between, you know, uh, unregulated or, or what are probably regulated, but we're issuing unregulated uh, crypto assets that they now call crypto securities versus what, what we do, which is to issue securities. I, I fundamentally think that, you know, a public blockchain is a better database if you want to simplify things, because as you said, it's open there, it's very easy to connect to, it's very easy to build building blocks to the stuff, it's very easy to, you know, go and read the information and, and trust that it's accurate. Mm -hmm. And uh, it hasn't, if it's there that it says that you own this, then it's actually true. Um, so uh, it's 99.99999 infinite uptime because things like Ethereum they've never been been down and all the databases get corrupted or they are they have downtime. Some blockchains do as well, but you know the, the good ones don't. So I, I fundamentally believe that um, if you were to start from scratch to build infrastructure, that would be the database that you would use, right? So, but but this needs to be communicated properly, and you know the fact that there's been blockchains that have fall apart or that have problems or, uh, you know, issues like that doesn't help uh, communicate because obviously regulators don't, are not necessarily sophisticated enough to distinguish between, let's say, Ethereum and something else, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and then the other thing is that there's a confusion about when something gets, when there's a hack, it's not that blockchain has been hacked, uh, but that, again, that's the perception, right? Oh, somebody like this DeFi protocol got hacked and people stole $100 million. Well, that's the DeFi guy that was not very good at writing the smart contract and screw up, but that doesn't mean that somebody hacked the blockchain, right? And I think that uh, distinction, which seems obvious for people in the industry like us, but it's actually a lot more subtle for all the people, right? They just don't distinguish that. So, and the third thing is that a lot of the issues that we've had in the industry have nothing to do with blockchain. You know, the, 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 the lenders have nothing to do with blockchain. They were just bad lenders taking unnecessary risks uh, and they, they blew up and, and doing illegal stuff like 
selling securities without disclosures to retain people, etc. So that has nothing to do with blockchain. They could have done it for other asset class if there was interest to do it, right? So FTX, the same thing, has nothing to do with blockchain. It's just basically a guy committing fraud, right, and stealing customer deposits on a centralized exchange. So, but again, that gives a bad impression to blockchain and uh, and the technology. So I think that we're going to have to go through a you know, a 12 to 18 months period in which first I hope that nobody does something stupid again and we don't get another drama because that will not help and will set the, every time something happens, I believe it sets the industry back uh, for a period of time mm-hmm. and hopefully start communicating these messages that, you know, blockchain is one thing, it's an infrastructure that is very good and then a bunch of other things that happen outside that are not because the blockchain doesn't work well, it's just because people are not very competent or people are breaking the law. Yep. No, absolutely. And, and so, you know, again, I, we completely agree, you know, why whales theses is, you know, proper, you know, governance and regulation is, is what's going to get, uh, crypto to that hundred you know, trillion market cap. Um, I don't know where Bitcoin's going to go. I never make a, I never make a prediction on any single coin, but I do, I do see, um, the, the global and, and kind of interplanetary, you know, we're, we're sitting here talking about, you know, spaceships and, and everything else, you know, blockchain is the future. There's, there's no way around it. There's no other technology that is even in second place, um, to kind of manage ownership, um, in a decentralized and distributed manner. So, with all that being said, um, you know, and we bring this to a close. You know, Carlos, you, you, you've you've come through Web One, Web Two. You're you're right there at the cusp of Web Three. You probably thought years ago that it's you know adoption, global adoption is going to happen any minute now. We still have a ways to go. What where's kind of your guiding you know north star over the next few years that you're going to continue to drive towards? I think something I've learned after being in Web Three and, and as you say, Web Two and Web One is that when you touch something that touches money and, and regulated things, the adoption takes longer, right? Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, there's always this, the, the people in technology say, oh, well, every new innovation gets adopted faster. Well, for this one, I believe it's not going to be that way. It's going to be slower because it touches things that are regulated and then that means regulation needs to adapt or, or, or be enforced or, and that will naturally, you know, make adoption slower, right? So. So I think that that's an, an important consideration. I still think that this is going to happen. It's unavoidable. Like if you think about things, things that get digitized always. There, there's nothing out there that doesn't eventually get digitized because digitization brings uh, a huge advantages for uh, for for anything. And then the same way that you know content got digitized or news or you know or voice or or video or many other things will make that you know financial uh, uh, services and capital markets will need to be digitized as well and, and hopefully on the blockchain because that seems to be what makes the most sense, right? I still think that we're uh, a while um, away. I don't think that this is, uh, even though there's all this excitement about real-world assets this year, if you look at them, the stuff that they're doing there is, is either small or highly questionable whether it's actually legal, <laughs> which is the other problem. I hope that boom, people don't start like issuing tokens saying that it's a real world asset and issuing a completely non-compliant way, even though some companies have already identified. Um, and then hopefully two things are going to happen, right? Regulation is going to come at some point, for sure. And there's two things that are going to happen. One is enforcement, and people don't like that the SEC is enforcing regulation, but in, in some cases, there's no new for new regulation. I mean, what BlockFi was doing was illegal, period, right? Uh, and it has nothing to do with, and they don't require any new regulation to regulate that. I think that enforcement is a way to tell people you have to follow the existing rules. And that, you know, even though they see, you might argue that they've come a posteriori and not a priori, or that they haven't gone after enough people, but, you know, I guess they've done what they've could with the resources they have. The second thing is, you know, adaptation for this new 
technology that facilitates to do things that from a regulatory perspective, maybe today are not simple, like can you use public blockchain as a way to represent things? Uh, can help you settle there in an efficient way? Uh, you know, what happens with things like investor accounts and things like that, which are highly restrictive when you suddenly have the ability of democratize access to these products, we change that, those things, uh, etc. So I think that the next two to three years, I don't think it's going to be faster. Uh, you know, that will happen. And in parallel, I think blockchain still has to solve a lot of adoption issues, right? You know, if you think about how internet took off, it's because eventually internet was transparent, right? Like you were online without knowing you were online. But when I started connecting to internet, I even remember like downloading a TCP IP stack in my computer because it didn't have a TCP IP stack to be able to install a model and dial up, right? And then you don't do those things anymore. So I believe that the wallet infrastructure, and I know Coinbase and other companies are doing a lot of good job in trying to bring this infrastructure um, in a way that wallet creation is transparent, is out there. You don't have to worry about like remember 12, uh, you know, passwords and, you know, it's just integrated in your phone or in your browser. And then suddenly you have access to, you know, the underlying blockchain that's uh, through the wallet. I think that that will simplify uh, adoption and then bring some sort of on-chain identity as well, right? So, so, so if we do it in one way or in another way. I don't care which one succeeds as far as there's something that ends up happening. But I think that's an important way because we, when we talk about ownership and ownership of regulated entities, unavoidably there has to be some sort of on-chain ID that attaches the, that on-chain product into a real-world ID of the investor, right? Because that, those things are regulated and as we discussed, you can't just send this token that represents a security to somebody in North Korea or in Afghanistan. So, yeah. This is fabulous. Um, you know, again, this is going to be a very long road. Um, you know, the the, the path to a hundred trillion dollars is, I think, the correct one to be tracking. Not the you know everyone likes to track Bitcoin, and so do I. It's great, um, but really, the the concept of once these these assets get on chain, their their volatility is so much lower. Um, their liquidity is so much better. And I think that that's really, hopefully everyone agrees with with you. Um, we do. Uh, that, that this is the direction of where to spend the time, energy, and money. And the focus of where blockchain should be is, is really to fix a lot of the existing problems, not to create new problems that didn't exist in the first place. Correct. Which seems to be uh, a lot of that what has happened in crypto, unfortunately. Absolutely. Uh, Whales, this is Carlos the Securitize. Carlos, what's the best place uh, for people to reach you or find out more if they want to put some things on chain or buy some so, things on chain? Securitize.io, that's our platform. It's open for business. You can register there and uh, there's some products that are for retail, even if you're just retail. Some other products are for accredited investors or qualified purchasers, again, depending on the regulatory, you know, uh, situation of the of the asset. Um, so, but you can just go there, create a Securitize ID account. Should be a fairly frictionless, uh, you know, process. Fund your account. You can use USDC to fund it. Uh, attach a wallet and go and buy something. That's amazing. That's amazing. Why whales? Go check it out. Securitize.io. This is Carlos. We'll catch you guys next time. Why Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. Why Whales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywhales.com.
YWales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by Truthwork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.